And I'd uh, like to invite us to open to our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 27. I know there's a few more verses in the bulletins, but I'm going to shorten it a bit. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 27, and that's on page 931 if you're following along in the Bibles in the pews. And we're continuing a sermon series looking at the Holy Spirit. We began this a number of weeks ago back on Pentecost. Um, We've had at least one little break in there, but we'll continue this series. Um, I would just encourage you to go back. If you haven't heard uh, some of those earlier sermons in this series, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. Um, And especially last week, we sort of shifted into a slightly different uh, part of this series where we're looking at actually some of the things that the Apostles' Creed talks about the Holy Spirit doing. And... uh, Each of these uh, messages are going to sort of build on the last one, and especially this one connects quite a bit to what we talked about last week. So if you didn't hear that one, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But this is our text for this morning, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 27. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian believers back then, as well as to us as believers today. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but it's the same spirit who distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of that one spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the same spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the the ear were to say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that seem to have less honor, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And then this is where Paul starts nailing it all down in verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part 
of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, in April of 1992, uh, after two years of tramping and hitchhiking across the United States and Mexico, adventurer Christopher McCandless hitched a ride to the trailhead of Stampede Trail near Denali National Park and hiked his way into the Alaskan bush. He spent the next three months there camping alone in an abandoned bus in the wilderness and living off the land, reading, journaling, and taking pictures. In July, though, after struggling to find enough food, he decided to hike back to civilization. But when he came to the Teklanika River, which he had crossed at a lower level back in April, he found that it was now swollen from glacier and snow runoff. Unable to ford it and make his way across, he was forced to return to his camp. With dwindling food supplies and no success hunting, the next month saw his physical condition deteriorate rapidly, and he documented that decline in his journal and in photographs that he took of himself. On September 6, 1992, a group of hunters arrived at McCandless's bus to spend the night there, and they unfortunately found his body. His autopsy indicated that he had been dead for two weeks, and he was just 24 years old. McCandless's story uh, was adapted into a best-selling book in 1996, which was called Into the Wild, and then it was adapted again into an award-winning film in 2007. And as a result, he's become a hero of sorts for wanderers and free spirits everywhere. In fact, when the movie came out, I was in college at Calvin at the time, and I remember some of my friends, they showed it in the FAC at Calvin, so we all went and watched it. And a few of my friends uh, were so inspired that they actually wanted to go and do the same thing, head off into the wilderness and have adventure. They admired McCandless's nonconformity, his daring, and his willingness to go wherever life took him, including into the wild. But I couldn't help but feel that my friends, after seeing that film, had sort of missed the point. You see, during his time in the wilderness, one of the things that McCandless seems to have come aware to was the fact that as good as life alone and in solitude, as life on your own and retreat can be, life is best lived with other people. You see, after his death, some of his friends and family read through his journals and found a renewed desire in his entries to connect with other people. Similarly, in the margins of one of his books, they found a note where he had scribbled the line, happiness only real when shared. You see, after months alone in the Alaskan wilderness without any interaction with other human beings, McCandless seems to have realized that while isolation and adventure and time off on your own in retreat is good for a time, life is truly and best lived in community. In other words, one way or another, we all as human beings find ourselves needing other human beings. In fact, as Christians, we believe that's how we're made. It's in our DNA. As Genesis 2 verse 18 says, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good for us to be alone because God didn't make us to be alone, at least not all the time. Instead, he created us for community. 
as image bearers of him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God with community and relationship built right within himself, we are made for community and relationship too. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're on the second of these works of the Holy Spirit that we're borrowing from the Apostles' Creed uh, this morning. At the end of the Creed, as we said a little bit ago towards the start of our worship, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And last week we said that those were all works of the Holy Spirit, things that the Spirit does or makes possible, and we looked at the first one of those, the Holy Catholic Church. This morning, then, we're going to look at the second one, the communion of saints, and how it is that the Holy Spirit knits us together, bonds and binds us, holds us in communion, and makes this community that we call the church possible. And let's start with two vital features of communion or community with other people. Put simply, at their most basic, there are two features that every community, at least a healthy, well-balanced one, needs to maintain. And those two features are unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. Let's start with unity. Unity is the bond or the glue, the adhesive that holds a community together. Uh, it's the common value or the shared interest, the collective belief that unites people into a community. You see, without unity, people tend to sort of spin out of control. Uh, we have a tendency to go our own ways, push and pull apart from each other, uh, each trying to go whatever way we think is best until in the end our communion and our relationship with each other splinters and shatters apart. As a result, uh, unity, and this probably isn't hard to see, is a vitally important piece of community of any kind, but that includes this community, the Christian community, which we call the church. But diversity, and this is the second element of community, is also vitally important. See, diversity is the uniqueness, the ingredients, the different constituent parts that make up a community. We all here today, for instance, or at least most of us, are united by our common confession of Christ as well as our affiliation, whatever degree that might be, with Ivanrest Church. And yet while we're all united, we are not the same. We are different people from different backgrounds with different views and different perspectives, and that's part of what makes our community interesting. It's part of what makes us distinct. It's part of what makes us a community. We are united. We are together, yes, but we are also diverse. We are also different. And as a community, we seek to hold those differences in connection with each other. So unity and diversity, both are vital features of a community of any kind, but that includes this one, the communion of saints, the church. Take bread, for example. I don't personally eat gluten because it does not good things for my stomach. Uh, something I recently realized again recently when I decided to take a few cheat days. How bad could it really be? Well, it turns out it's really bad. Um, but even as somebody who doesn't eat gluten, I will be the first to tell you that it is incredibly hard to bake. 
without gluten. Uh, it's hard to make things like gluten-free cookies or bread or cake, and that's because gluten, uh, which is found in things like wheat and rye and barley, is a natural glue of sorts that holds baked goods together. It's the adhesive, the bonding agent that fuses all the other things in baked goods like water and salt and sugar and all the rest, fuses them all together into one thing, uh, a loaf of bread or a pan of cookies or a tray of muffins. You see, without gluten, all those other ingredients, they tend to fall apart. If you've ever had gluten-free bread, especially when it gets kind of soggy, then you know what I'm talking about. Because it has a tendency to just sort of disintegrate and, and fall apart and dissolve into sort of a, a mushy sort of gruel. It's not great. Um, put simply, without gluten, that glue that holds those ingredients together, baked goods tend to crumble. And yet, even though that's the case, even though you want gluten in your baked goods to hold them together, you don't want to eat just gluten, right? Again, gluten comes from things like wheat and rye and barley. You don't want that to be all you eat. You don't want to just eat flour, right? You want all that other stuff in a baked good as well. You want all those other ingredients. You want that water, that sugar, that salt, everything else that goes into bread or cake or cookies. After all, that's what, make baked, that's what makes baked good, goods worth eating. Not just the gluten, but all the things that the gluten holds together. And the same thing is true of community, including Christian community. You need unity, like gluten in bread, to hold it together. But you also need diversity, the different ingredients to make it interesting, to make it flavorful, to make it compelling and good and worthwhile. You need both of those things in balance and tension with each other. The challenge, though, is indeed balancing those things and not allowing either of them, unity on the one hand or diversity on the other, to overwhelm or take the other over. When that happens, a community suffers. It breaks apart, and in a very real sense, it ceases to be a true community, or at least it ceases to be the kind of community that the Bible describes. For example, when the value of unity overwhelms diversity and takes a community over, you get what's called uniformity. Uniformity is forced unity. It's forced sameness. It allows for no difference, no distinction, no difference of opinion. Instead, everyone has to be exactly the same. They need to be uniform, hence the word uniformity. On the other hand, though, when diversity overwhelms unity and takes a community over, you get division. Division is forced diversity. It's forced separation. It allows for no unity, no cohesion, no togetherness. Instead, it forces everyone to be different, separate, divided. And both of those two things are ditches that we ought to avoid falling into in any community that we're a part of, but especially this one, the communion of saints, the body of Christ, the church. Uh, truth be told, at least I see this in our culture these days, a lot of communities in our broader culture struggle with these two ditches and not falling into them. Uniformity on the one hand and division on the other. Um, I'll just use our two major political parties as an example. After all, it's been a year since we talked about faith and politics for 10 weeks, right? We can go back to that well. We're going to anyway, so uh, here goes. It seems to me, this is just my opinion, 
I'm not telling you you have to agree with me. But it seems to me that for the last few years, the Republican Party has been dealing with that first ditch of uniformity. In other words, the Republican Party has too much unity, too much sameness, too much groupthink or collectivity going on. There's no diversity, no distinction, no difference of opinion or flexibility allowed. Instead, everyone has to be exactly the same. This has gotten a little bit less since some other people, namely Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, and others, have declared their candidacy for president. But for a while there in the Republican Party, it seemed like everyone had to agree with and support Donald Trump or else. There was no room for different opinions, different approaches, different viewpoints or perspectives. Instead, at least for a while, anyone who didn't agree with, pay homage to, or support Donald Trump was disenfranchised, shunned, and made unelectable in the Republican Party. Rhinos, they were called. Republicans in name only. Fake Republicans. And many of them were swiftly and suddenly booted out of the party. And my friends, that is a textbook case of uniformity. It's forced unity, forced sameness, where everyone has to agree and think exactly the same way. And it's far from a good way to create or foster community, much less, you know, govern a modern nation state. But if the Republicans have been struggling with too much uniformity the last few years, it seems to me that the Democrats have actually fallen into that other ditch up there, and they're struggling with division. This has been interesting to me, uh, but for the last couple years, it seems like the Democrats hardly even know what they're about, other than we don't like them, when they refer to the Republicans, right? They'll unite against the Republicans, but that's about it. All of their big-name leaders seem to have different agendas and priorities in the party. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seems to have one agenda. Bernie Sanders seems to have another. Nancy Pelosi, another. Joe Biden, still another. They're all off on their own, doing their own thing, with no unity, no cohesion, no togetherness, and that's division. It's too much diversity, too much difference, too much distinction, and it's splitting the Democratic Party apart. So Republicans have too much unity, they're too much the same, while Democrats have too much diversity, they're too different. But as Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we in the church are called to be both. We are called to be both united and diverse, both together and distinct, both the same and different. And that's more or less what the Apostle Paul is talking about in our passage for this morning. That's really what all of Paul's talk here about different body parts in the body is all about. You see, what Paul is saying here is that just like the human body is made up of different parts, you know, hands and feet and eyes and ears and the head and so on, the church is made up of different parts too. We have different people, different gifts, different functions, different callings, different roles. In other words, diversity. The church, or at least it's supposed to be, is a diverse community with difference, distinction, baked in. After all, as Paul puts it in verses 17 through 19 here, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? If they were all one part, where would the body be? 
In other words, what Paul is saying is that diversity, difference, distinction, variety, just like different parts in a human body, are crucial values for the body, the community, the communion of the church. Without such diversity, the church, in a very real sense, ceases to actually be the church. But it also ceases to be the church without unity. You see, just like the different parts of the body are joined, united, and connected together in the body as a whole, so too the individual members of the church are joined, united, and connected to each other. Again, as Paul says, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And then again, he says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Paul's point is that while the church, like a body, has different parts, and as he acknowledges here, some of them are very different, they are still united. They're still the same body, connected, joined together, and no part of the body, no part of the church may say to another, you don't belong, you don't deserve to be here, we don't need you. Rather, every part is recognized, honored, valued, and cared for. That's what Christian community the communion of saints looks like. It looks like unity in diversity, connection in distinction, communion in the midst of variety. And like we said last week, that is nothing short of a miracle. After all, it seems like we're only finding more and more things to divide over these days in our culture, go our separate ways on, split apart about. Red state, blue state, science, faith, ethnicity, race, sexuality, gender, education, economics, medicine, technology, climate, culture, and so much more. The rocks and reefs that we are splitting apart on and breaking apart over in these days are endless. And it seems like every day we discover more. And yet, this community, the church, ought to be a sanctuary from all of that, a respite, a haven. Even if no one else in our broader culture or society can find things to connect on, we should be able to, right? Our faith, our connection in Christ, our confession of what we believe as Christians should be enough to hold us together as a body. Unfortunately, though, I'm not sure that that always happens. To be honest, even in the church, it seems like we're breaking apart on the same rocks as everyone else. For instance, I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years that they're leaving their church for reasons that, if I'm honest, don't seem like the sorts of things that people should leave a church over. 
Uh, For instance, over the years, I've had people tell me they're leaving their church because it's too supportive of Christian education. They don't like how much money their church spends on Christian schooling. And I've had other people tell me that they're leaving their church because it isn't supportive enough of Christian education. That one was actually in the same church, so you figure that out. I don't know how that works. Um, I've had people tell me that they're leaving their church because they think it's too involved in the broader community and because they think it's not involved enough in the broader community. I've had people tell me they're leaving their church because it's taken too strong of stands on certain ethical and moral issues. And I've had other people tell me that they're leaving their church because it hasn't taken a strong enough stand on moral and ethical issues. In fact, I've even had people tell me that they're leaving their churches over things as mundane as how many chairs are in the lobby. I'm not making that up. Uh, What time the morning worship service is, because let's fight about when we worship, Um, and because the church didn't choose to go with their preferred color of carpet in the remodel. And I'm not making that up. I mean, I think church divisions over things like the sacraments, worship style, and preaching methods are just as ridiculous, but at least there's valid theological debate that you can point to in those. But carpet color? Come on. And now I'm really hoping that none of you have ever left a church over carpet. My point is that we shouldn't be so quick to divide, to split, to leave. My friends, this is the body of Jesus Christ. It's not my body. It's not your body. It's Christ's body. And so that should be what holds us together. That should be what bonds us. That should be what forms and shapes us into a unified people, plural, of God. In a world and culture where everyone just continues to become more polarized, more pulled apart, more partisan and divided according to their own perspectives and preferences, the church should exist counterculturally as a modern-day miracle of different people from different backgrounds with different perspectives, different parts, in Paul's words, who nonetheless are united as one group, one body, the body of Jesus. Jesus Christ. After all, Paul says here that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. In verses 4 through 14, he writes this There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by that same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Do you hear it over and over and over again? Nine times in this passage, who does Paul point to 
as the one who unifies us and holds us together. It's the Holy Spirit. He is who keeps us in communion, unifies us, binds us in the body of Christ. To a large degree, and there's a lot more that we could say about this, but to a large degree, the Holy Spirit is one of the most crucial elements in our unity as Christian believers. It is the Spirit that binds us to each other, joins us together, and holds us diverse people, though we are, in communion and community as Christians. To go back to our earlier example, it's, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is the glue or the gluten, if you will, that holds us, all the constituent ingredients of the church, together in one body. And we actually, I mean, we have a tangible example of that here, right? This is why we keep coming back to this table month after month, we are reminded of many different things at this table. But for our purposes today, I want to touch on just two of them. First, we come to this table to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, right? We come to this table and we say that Christ's body was given for us or broken for us. We say that his blood was shed for us. The sacraments, this one and that one, are sermon illustrations, constant sermon illustrations, because they enact the gospel before us in a tangible way. Every time we come here, we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice for us. But we are also reminded that we are bound together with each other. After all, what do we call this sacrament? Communion, right? Because that's what we believe. We believe that when we come to this table, we commune with our Lord and Savior in some sort of mysterious and strange way. But we also believe that in a different sort of mysterious and strange way, we commune with each other as well. We believe that we commune together with all our brothers and sisters all around the world and all throughout time by the power of the Holy Spirit here at this table. I say this often when we celebrate this sacrament, but just as food, regular bread, our meals at home or in a restaurant nourish us physically so that we can have energy to go about our day-to-day -day lives, this sacrament, this meal, nourishes us spiritually as Christian believers, to go about our Christian lives. And one of the things that it nourishes us to do through the power and working of the Holy Spirit is live together with each other, sinful, broken people though we are, in the communion of saints, the community of Christ, the church. The church is a modern-day miracle, my friends. But that's what we believe, and that's who we are. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have been working miracles since the beginning of time. You have called out of nothing everything. You have created us and given us life. And you have called us out of all our diverse backgrounds and brokenness and sin after we turned away from you and rejected you into this body you call the church. And for whatever reason, this is the way you choose to go about your work in your world. 
you have chosen us. And you call us together in a common confession of Jesus Christ. You give us your grace. You empower us with your Holy Spirit to be your body here on earth. Help us to remember that in all our diversity and beauty and difference, which is indeed beautiful. Bind us together through your spirit. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.